Oi. Hello, Amelia. Hi. Phone's ringing in the background. That'll be our Gary. Hello. That's me. Hello, Gary. Oi. Are we all here? Hello. Hi. Doesn't this feel positively 21st century? It really does. <laughs> we'll never need to get on an airplane ever again. Oh, no. Don't say that. It's fun. <laughs> I love flying to California. I still, <laughs> Even I still I... have this weird thing where I'm listening to you through the speaker on my laptop rather than through the headphones. You can hear me okay, I presume. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess it's no problem then. In, in fact, I have to say that, you know... Uh, Amelia and I were just saying a second ago that this actually sounds quite often better than the than landline calls we've had. Oh, absolutely. The first couple of – I listened to the first one we did where you, where I was on my 10-year-old phone, which doesn't sound normal anyway, and it, it sounded like I was underwater, and you sounded fine. So this mm. is actually uh, much clearer, and I was talking to Cheryl the other day as well. Uh, actually, I have um, – I put Skype on my uh, uh, mobile, my cell phone, yep. and that was a clearer connection as well. There you go. This is the 21st century. So, Amelia Beamer, welcome to our podcast. Oh, crap. We're recording already. Hi. <laughs> Are okay. we oh, recording already? Oh, okay, hang on. Let me, let, let me take a step back from that. Um, we don't don't have... you normally like, do an introduction? <laughs> or was that it? Okay. You, see, you don't listen to our podcast, don't, do you? I've listened to a couple of them, but usually ever... there's like a hello, other people are listening aspect to it. <laughs> well, you see, and not just th- hey, we're jawing among ourselves here. This is because you say, and uh, we, I have absolutely no audio skill whatsoever, so I've got no way of editing. Uh, so what happens is either <laughs> we, you know, we talked privately separately for a minute, then call back and go, we're on, or at some point we just m- sort of move into. We're away. Because Excellent. Because after all, it is, I mean, honestly, it's not a big formal podcasting thing, as you know. It's really just us chatting. You know, I mean, one of the most hilarious things were the people who are sort of saying, oh, I love the way they go sort of, sort of from the stuff they've planned to talk about to um, just other, you know, other things that occur to them. And you're going, it's all just stuff that occurs to us. <laughs> so if we're talking about health. Foolish and misinformed our listeners are. Does that mean we aren't recording yet? <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, I'm I'm willing to sort of we we can we can start fresh, or we can just let the listeners put up with this. What do you think? I think they can take it. Okay, I don't think we've yet sort of begun to sort of unravel all the deepest, darkest secrets of modern science fiction in such a way that people will come with us with their stealth ninjas and take us out for saying you know, awful things about them. That'll come later. That'll come later, yeah. We'll have to think of things. <laughs> okay, well, if, if we are actually doing... Well, if, if that being the case, this is this is still the this is, is still the Cood Street podcast. I mean, this is still uh, your thing, Jonathan, so you, it's up to you to introduce Amelia. Well, okay. Today, for the first time, we are joined by a guest, Amelia Beamer. Hello, Amelia. Hello. So now I'm popping your podcast cherry for guests anyway. I just had my podcast cherry popped recently. It was awesome. It is. It is awesome. Um, And we hope that we'll get a chance to do it sort of some more. Uh, Amelia, for those out there who do not know, is a senior editor at Locus. I'm not a senior editor yet. I'm waiting. Okay. Okay. Not formally, but you've been an editor there for some time. Would that be fair? Five years. Five years. 
an editor at Locus, a reviewer and critic, and also the author of a brand spanking baby new novel called The Loving Dead, which I started reading last night. Thank you. I'm pleased that you did. I got the uh, the tweet, or I saw the tweet that, that you were like, I'm past the... Well, you said you're up to chapter six in Loving, which was very kind of you. The the Some of the advanced sort of... Um, feedback I've seen is like it has a very slow start and I was like showing it to my husband he was like somebody gets attacked in chapter one (laughs) (laughs) and there's sex by chapter two or something well yeah (laughs) and chapter four and chapter six and I haven't read chapter seven okay okay yes speaking as review you guys have just listed about seven spoilers um (laughs) no all of them in chapter one and two we didn't tell you who killed who. We didn't tell you who had sex with who. Um, you know, so that's all new. If, if you want to, it's sort of... true. <laughs> I was simply alluding to the fact that I've heard from authors complaining about spoilers in chapter one of their damn book, and I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't forget these things when we're told them. And yet, I have to say that I, I when I was reading, because I read the opening to the book on your website. Um, because it's not out yet, I was looking at the, you know, there's this photo of you looking very cool in black jacket, and it says, you know, Amelia Beamer, sort of editor, photographer, author. I'm thinking, I want to have worked at that locus, because the locus that your website suggests (laughs) is not the one I went to. It had fluffy bunny slippers, and that's not a fluffy, fluffy bunny slipper photograph. I did not put anything in my bio about how many boxes I have moved over the years. (laughs) Because you know about the box moving. I know about the box moving. I know about showing up with you know, coffee and Danish and wandering around basically a small house. And now, of course, since I've been there with, with little children running around and all of that, which is exactly not kind of the impression. It suggests you're sort of, from, from the website, it looks like you've just jet-setted in from sort of Cancun and you're ready for the next major <laughs> science fiction assignment that's going to be plopped at your desk so you can sort of get on with your jet-setting editorial photojournalist career. Right, Grab nothing the executive about elevator. <laughs> Is that what it's proving to be like to be a first novelist? Oh, well, it's it's not so much like being an editor and having your desk located literally inside a closet. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know, I was talking about this with uh, John Armstrong on his podcast. Um, and the uh, the thing that, that I sort of knew about authors because I've written, you know, I've written a bunch of stuff and I've gotten some of it published here and there and gotten some little awards here and there. And the thing that you think, you know, I'm an author. And I, you know, I kind of get how it works. And, and then suddenly you're a novelist and you are like full of apprehension and, you know, and John put it in the like, you're waiting for the parade, you're waiting <laughs> for the parade of people to like come to your doorstep. And, 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 you know, the parade is, is not actually how it works in no. the industry. <laughs> but is it almost, 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 yeah, sorry, Gary, go ahead. Uh, no, Amelia, Amelia, you were there at the International Conference on the Fantastic when Daryl Gregory got his Crawford Award, and, and his acceptance yeah. speech, which was delightful, was and essentially on the theme of how, how insecure first novelists are. He said, I remember him saying, all we do is Google ourselves constantly. <laughs> yeah, he said, this, this award, this is for that redhead at Barnes & Noble who didn't get it when I put my exactly. credit card with my name on it, on top of my <laughs> book, with my name on it. 
Like, right. yeah, we, we are like that. We are very needy people. Because you, because we don't all get the Dan Brown experience where you can show up at the airport without your passport and some schlump standing in front of you has the, has your book and you can use the dust jacket <laughs> photo as identification. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, that's me. Right. <laughs> and, and and people edge away from you on the sidewalk saying, sure, fine. But, but, but based on my own limited experience as well, I would imagine being a first-time novelist is somewhere between standing at the front door waiting for the parade to come ab- along and whisk you up and also kind of waiting for the executioner's axe to fall. You know? Well, and <laughs> the, so the thing about a first novel, I think in particular, is that um, – so it was the first novel I ever finished. It's really the first novel I ever wrote. Um, and being a first novel, which I more or less wrote on a whim, I kind of put a lot of stuff into it that I might not have put into it if I hadn't thought, well, this will be read by a couple of friends and we'll see if it goes anywhere. But I'm not that worried about pe- people judging me. So I'll just put all this like really raunchy, scary, nasty stuff in it. And see if it works for anybody else and you know really you only have to sell it to one person i did that yeah. so here's hoping that it sells to more because it's july isn't it it's july i actually have a box of books um i had a box of books show up at locus um magic the week or so ago and and it was this wonderful moment i can't imagine any anything better like People talk about, you know, the moment that you open that first box of your book, it's just great. And every time it's just great. And having like all of my coworkers sort of gathered around because they understand because they're all readers and they're, you know, some of them are writers and, and they, they, they get it. Yep. And so we're like, we've got all, you know, we've got our all, all of us gathered around and office babies like, oh, open it, open it. And I'm <laughs> popping open the... One of the things... The, and everybody goes. One of the. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I, I one of the interviews you'd given Amelia, you, you made a very nice metaphor, which I'd like to come back to, which was because you, because you, I mean, it's not just for working at Locus these years, but you were you were at Clarion, you worked at Clarion, you've known lots of writers for lots of years, so you've watched careers blossom and and tank and so forth and so on, and what you said was. Uh, all the years you've been a, a journalist in this field and a scholar in this field, you've learned how sausage is made. And now you're sausage. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. That that actually occurred to me as I was saying it. But that's that's the that's the feeling of actually being part of it rather than mm. seeing, you know. And you know, like some of the boxes that I have moved, a lot of the boxes that I have moved multiple times, you know, in my long career, have been full of, you know, first novel by people who had just as many hopes as I do. And, <laughs> and yes. you know, maybe they got a series and maybe they didn't. And odds are, like, we, we put away a lot of books hoping that, you know, these books are going to be by the people who go somewhere. Yeah. And we have to call them regularly to sort of figure out, oh, well, these are the people who didn't. And mm-hmm. you end up with a truckload yeah. worth of those, essentially, a truckload. Yeah. Well, so this reminds me of, of a tweet that I saw go past maybe three, four, five weeks ago, where uh, John Joseph Adams was saying he had just been interviewed via email for the very first time. And he himself had sent out hundreds and hundreds of email interviews to various people. Uh, and he wanted mm-hmm. to apologize because he didn't realize how horrible it was to have to do it. 
that it was just such, yeah. such a horrible chore to sit there and type out these lengthy answers again and again. So. Yeah, I have I have definitely had that feeling doing interviews for Locus where you, you, you just want to get the person to say something really bright and smart. And, you know, some people are, are really good at that off the cuff and, and some people need a little bit more help. And, you know, it, it helps to ask good questions and the kind of questions that are the sort of standard, like, well, what are your influences, mm. that sort of thing. People get really bored with those. They get really bored with well, those. One of the, one, one, one of the interviews that uh, and Amelia and I have done a couple of interviews, few, uh-huh. a few interviews together by now. And one, of, and you're always on the side of the interview. You, Amelia's right. You want them to be brilliant. Oh, yeah. And once or twice, one of my very favorite writers we interviewed uh, less than a year ago, maybe a little bit more than a year ago, uh, brilliant writer. And the interview was it was fine, but it just didn't scintillate the way his fiction did. Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm obviously not going to mention who it is. I think oh. Amelia can probably guess. And you think, I want to hear the guy that I read. Uh, yeah. And, and are there are other interviews where you're thinking, I wish I could read the guy that I'm hearing now. Yeah. Which, um, which is, the interview is so much more articulate than some of the fiction. Which is really thoroughly unreasonable. I mean, I remember the first time that I ever met a living, breathing author person. You know, that, you know I, was, I was like 19. And Stephen Donaldson was touring Australia for the last of the second series of the Thomas Covenant books. And I swear, I was expecting, like, his big giant kind of romantic bluff character to come walking in. And this guy came in who looked perfectly nice and normal. But my thought was, he looks like an accountant. How can that possibly be the guy <laughs> who wrote this stuff, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's not Santa Claus at all. Exactly. And it's utterly unreasonable and utterly unfair. But that's what we do to to the, you know, the writers whose work we love kind of thing. You do sort of put a lot onto them to be more than you know, they na- you know, na- may- maybe ever could be. Particularly since, and I'm sure, well, I imagine you found this in writing your own book, what you do is you sit down for three months or six months or 12 months or four years, depending on who you are, and you chisel out that wit and wisdom from an enormous rock face for, you know, so it's just right. And you would never actually respond like that typically though i have to say i did detect some amelia in the book i was reading oh. <laughs> what that actually means <laughs> i don't want to think that okay so there yeah there's there's some in jokes and stuff that i'm sure you'll you'll suss out um oh, yeah. but what i really was was looking for like like borderlands is is mentioned in it in an aside, like, you know, somebody's favorite science fiction bookstore in the mission. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they go to a Giants game that I went to and are, you know, hollering at the mm-hmm. left outfielder um, and, you know, talking smack as you do. And, you know, just in jokes of, of, of San Francisco stuff, of Bay Area stuff, um, mostly. And, um, and what I... What I'm hoping people get, because I, I actually had like a childhood friend write me and say, oh, I read it and I could totally see, you know, people mm-hmm. that, you know, that she knew that, you know, that we knew sort of thing. And, and, and what I'm hoping for is that people don't say, oh, well, your main character is clearly you because they're, we're not the same person. I want to say that, you know, she is somebody mm-hmm. that my friends would be friends with or, you know, I'm somebody that her friend to be friends with that sort of thing we've 
we are from like she's from Madison. I'm from uh, or from outside of Madison. I'm from outside of Detroit. There's a lot of parallel like Midwestern transplanted to California. Um, but, but one of the things that has to be has to be challenging is to do that in such a way that it, it works seamlessly for a reader who doesn't know this stuff and, 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 and becomes an Easter egg for, for the people who do. For example, the house I don't, I, I don't know how much you want to say, but the house in, 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 in the Loving Dead is a familiar house to me. Is that enough to say? It's a familiar house. It's a house of a dear friend um, and it's it's definitely a, a, an in-joke for those in the know, but something that isn't really like all in-jokes, not really worth explaining. Yeah, yeah. But that's, that's, my, that's my point. The house works in terms of the necessary geography for the novel, and the, the, the novel works out. I, I obviously have read the novel and enjoyed it a lot, but the, a lot of the novel depends on the geography of the Bay Area working out in a certain way. Is that fair to say? Absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to write a Bay Area novel, um, and I wanted to, and of course, since I'm thoroughly contradictory, um, I wanted them to not actually have to set foot in San Francisco at any point. Um, so mm -hmm. they're in Oakland. And what, you know, what do you do when the zombies come? Um, and the reason why I set, you know, them living, my characters are living in this, this house in Oakland that I know um, is because there are glass windows. Mm. Full mm -hmm. glass windows in, in one of the rooms. Um, two walls of glass windows. And I was thinking, what is the least defensible place I know of in this, in, in this entire, you know, area? Oh, it's that room. It's that room. Because when the zombies come, there's not enough plywood in the entire county to make that house safe. <laughs> <laughs> although, although you did, you did mention one of the things that's fascinating about this, and we could probably spin off on other novels as well, is mm. the fact that you've got a bunch of characters who are trying to, they're trying to cope with an unexpected reality based on their knowledge of movies about a fictional version of the same thing they're doing. And one of the, for example, you you do observe very, very correctly that in, in George Romero movies, all these people have plywood lying around, mm. um, and how many of us actually have enough plywood in the house to nail up the doors when we have to? Um, yep. I suppose that's all part of the preparing for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> but, um, Though I would not but, uh, swear uh, as to what's downstairs in that locust basement. I mean, you know, there could be <laughs> enough plywood down there, frankly. There probably, actually, now that you mention it, that probably is one of the few zombie-ready houses. <laughs> uh, or, or you could sit down there and just throw foreign editions of science fiction novels at them until they go away. Or you used to be able to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God! The zombies, the zombies looking for Heinlein first editions rather than brains. Um, <laughs> that does sound like our crowd. Um, it does sound like our group. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Actually, uh, but, I, I have. Sorry. No, just oh, a I quick footnote about. The, uh... You go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. I, I, I was. This, this is a parenthesis. Yeah. Um, because I was reading the best of Kim Stanley Robinson today, which I recommend. Even though Jonathan edited it, it's a good book, Oops, um, and it has an absolutely stunning new story in it. But one of the stories is a classic example of a shout-out to friends. There's a story of his, kind of a well-known story now, uh, called A History of the 20th Century with Illustrations, in which the narrator clearly is going out and camping out in John and Judith Clute's flat in Camden Town, London, 
and uh, and 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 Stan has made no secret about this. As a matter of fact, he included that story in a uh, a tribute anthology to, to the Clutes, and it's really neat because so many people in the science fiction world have been in that flat that it becomes part of the uh, comfort level of reading that story. And yet, if you've never been there and have no idea that this is a real flat he's talking about, it doesn't interfere with the flow of the story at all. Yeah. And that, that, that's what I'm saying is the same kind of thing with, with some of the in-jokes uh, in or some of the shout-outs or some of the reference that you, uh, that you have in, in, in The Loving Dead. Another example that comes to mind, which specifically refers to Charles Brown, was uh, Ellen Clages's second novel, White Sands Red Menace, in which all the chapter titles are taken from early 1950s short stories that she mm -hmm. knew Charles Brown would appreciate. <laughs> and yeah. they're perfectly good chapter titles, mm -hmm. but they're all just – okay, anybody growing up in the early 50s reading science fiction would have known every single one of those stories. Yeah. Kind of a yeah, nice well, little tribute to Charles. Yeah, and I mean she's one of, of – that That actually – that book is, is another little in-joke where I've got a character talking – you know, making some reference to uh, when you write alone, you ride with Hitler. Well, where did that come from? Well, I, I picked it up from some novel, you know, <laughs> and it's that yeah. novel. I've got a question. I've got a question for you, Amelia, because I figure you've researched this. Did anybody have zombie contingency plans before Kelly wrote that story? Um, not that I was able to find. <laughs> but it just seems that everybody now has zombie contingency plans. I, I see it re you know, referenced here and there. It's through the novel and everything else. I'm kind of going, did it just spread like some little meme in the background all of its own? Well, I think I wonder. that... Yeah, I mean, I think that, that zombies have been sort of popular enough and, and enough of a zeitgeist that people do think of things, but not necessarily in those precise terms. Because mm. I've had a lot of conversations I, with people where they're like, what are you going to do when the zombies come? <laughs> my plan? I'm, I'm going to die. I'm going to be one of the first to die. That's actually my plan. That's so awesome. Get, but one, one, one of the things that's, <laughs> Why? that... Why? That, that, the Loving Dead does do, and there are there are there are obviously allusions. To the, the, I'm sure the phrase "some zombie contingency plan" started with Kelly. What I'm curious about is, and I don't know zombie yeah. literature uh, from Adam. Yeah. Uh, is is there really a link? Is is there a bridge? And The Loving Dead is a bridge, but I mean, is, are there bridges between the zombies that show up in Kelly's stories, like the Horror Black or some zombie contingency plans, mm -hmm. and the zombies from uh, George Romero movies, Max Brooks? Ah, we lost Gary. Did we lose Gary? He better call back. Yeah. We lost Gary. Oh, Gary. Come back, Gary. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sort of pinging him just so he'll, he'll come back because, you know, we want... Oh, of course, we could have told stories about him while he wasn't here. I know. We've lost it. He's ringing on my end. Is he? Let's yeah. hope that he... There he is. We lost you. You <laughs> fell off. You were in Chicago did and you, just disappeared. Did you say something really good? Did you say something really smart while we were gone? Uh, you guys, I have no idea what happened. Um, can you Sit hear me? closer to your mic. Oh, something, okay. Something very weird is happening. I'm on two computers at once now. Well, turn one, um, one off. Pick one and turn it off. <laughs> oh boy! I'm going to rename this the least least professional podcast in the world. I listened to the one you did yesterday, or you did with John Armstrong, 
And it mm. just sounds like it was all smooth yep. and professional. And there's John with his, you know, sort of low pitched kind of professional radio tone. Oh, no, nicely mixed, actually. Yeah, he, um, we, we both recorded it each on our ends, and he mixed it. It's you know, none of this Skype business. Like we, we did it all professional. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Are you okay now, Gary? Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, we're good. I th- can, can you? Okay, are you hearing me all right now? Yes. Finish your question. Okay. My, my well, my point was this. My question was, um, in 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 the Loving Dead, you make references to Kelly Link and you make references to George Romero and the whole kind of pop zombie thing that's going on with Max Brooks and everybody now. Is there a link between those? Do you think Max Brooks has ever heard of Kelly Link stories? Because she was doing zombies in a completely different way from all these other people. Uh, I don't know, and I can't guess, and ultimately I think it really doesn't matter, because they hit different segments of the readership. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of people who are thoroughly into zombies who are chasing down Kelly Link stuff. Um, they should, um, because it's awesome, but the only link that I can think of between Kelly Link and, and you know, all of the zombie movies is that she was talking when we interviewed her for the magazine in 2006 or 2005, whenever it was, she was talking about, you know, she'd just come back from teaching um, and had been really, really, really busy and had to recover from that. And recovering from that was sort of lying on the couch and watching a lot of bad zombie movies, bad as in like B movies. and and so I think that's where some of it came from. But she completely reinvents the zombie. Mm-hmm. Good. Anybody else got anything to say? We'll just stand here and it'll be good. No, I was I was my that was your still, shot. I'm that's still still you my microphone here. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I was going to say, how does it feel to have been added to a very small and exclusive bookshelf uh, in the in science fiction? Locus people who've actually had novels published. Yeah, I know we are kind of a nepotistic little crowd, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's what there's what there was Carolyn's book, Witch and Wombat. There was Farron's mm-hmm. book, The Illusionists. There was mm-hmm. Tim's impressive Hugo Award-winning um, uh, sort of you know body of work that, that, that's evolving. And now there's this. I think that's everything, isn't it so far? Isn't it, isn't that everybody? Um, um, aside from the reviewers, go... yeah. Well, what, what do you mean aside from the reviewers? <laughs> Well, critics and well, anthologists don't count. We're talking about novels. Well, I mean, uh, Adrian, oh, is her novel, is her, is her book a novel got, or not? Well, Adrian's got a couple of memoirs. Um, Paul yeah. Whitcover, you know, like... Oh, of course, yes. If you, if you actually, like, do all of the... All the people involved, like we've we've oh, got a, a fair number of things. Oh um, lord, we we could rabbit on for months about about the the, you know, the extended stuff. Once you bring in Terry Bisson and Gardner Desois and as you say Paul and people like that, then suddenly we have oceans and oceans of people. But I was thinking right. more of those people who've actually sort of laboured in the in, in the mines of um, you know Oakland where, where you are, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's a. There's definitely the sort of like, I don't know, I've been in the trade since before I was of legal drinking age, um, counting when I worked at Clarion. Um, so 
like that's pretty much my entire professional career so far, aside from like a five month stint at a nonprofit. Um, so I've made a lot of connections and I definitely feel like those connections have shaved off what might've taken longer to do otherwise. Um, I don't think that's an unfair way to have a career. I just, I appreciate that that that's (laughs) the way that I've, somehow managed to do it yeah yeah well i mean that that that, i mean i know somebody could sit from the outside and say well you know well obviously you had all these um extra contacts that maybe some people uh didn't have but at the end of the day that doesn't change the fact that what you have to do is write a book and have people read it and it has to be successful on that that level you know right you know i um, think the other side yeah the other side of that is that you've got um, a, a phenomenal list of blurbs uh, for the book, which are on your website, and some of these are people you really didn't even know. Uh, some are people you'd met once or twice, and some are people who are friends. But you, you, you can't assume. I, I don't know if this went through your mind or not, Amelia. That you know, if, if okay, a friend's going to blurb a book, and sometimes people blurb books because they're friends. But it, but the actual nature of the blurbs uh, tells me that people actually read and liked the book. Um, and that's got to be a nice feeling by itself. Uh, there's there, no, there's always the possibility. Any- I didn't get get anybody like they they phoned them in like this is the best novel I've read all year or something. This is Mm -hmm. definitely the most recent novel that I have finished. Like nothing along those lines. (laughs) So. So. Well, uh, one of the things, one of the things, Jonathan, you and I were talking about getting yeah. Amelia here because we, uh, and I, I was saying, I was saying this that uh, the way we've been doing these things are conversations, which is exactly yeah. what we're doing right now. But, but I also was saying Amelia can talk about a lot of stuff besides her novel, which we obviously want to plug, and you should go out and read it, um, and uh, we can go on doing that. But um, there, there's a bunch of other stuff that we could all just chat about the way we always do. I think what's fascinating about this is that the three of us are talking now, and all three of us, either together or individually, have had these long, rambling conversations, not mm-hmm. too different from these podcasts, with Charles. Yep. Yep. And they're, they're utterly fascinating. I think, that, frankly, one of the reasons we got this whole thing started it was that, uh, uh, that at least you and I, Jonathan, were missing those conversations, and, and we started yep. having them. And I always had them with Amelia and with a yep. few other people. Um, and now we've got people actually asking us what we're going to talk about. Yep. So here's my theory. Here's my theory in answer to Neil Harrison's question. Neil, if you're out there, uh, he wanted us to talk about Stephen Baxter and Terry Pratchett collaborating. Oh, okay. Uh, any thoughts about that? Sure. I think – I mean I- – I'll, I'll, if you like, I'll start. Basically, my thought was this. At first, I thought that's a really, really weird thing. Uh, it just seems like a very odd, dissonant kind of combination of writers. And then I thought, perhaps cynically, maybe there's a financial thing at the, at, at, at the heart of it. Then I thought, maybe there's a rather sad kind of medical thing at the heart of it, too. Then I said all that aside and went back and, looked and thought, if you look at the earliest of Terry Pratchett books, books like Strata... Um, mm it's not that bad a mick connection with Steve Baxter. It's really not. So it could be a really in- interesting thing. The only thing I'm, I really do wonder is, I know that the, it's, it's basically, I believe, Baxter completing work that Pratchett like wrote back in the mid-80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't know whether at the end of it, Pratchett will have further you know, authorial input or whether it's just simply handing a couple of boxes to Steve Baxter and saying, go for it. That I don't know. Yeah, 
I, I mean, Amelia, I mean, has there been any news coming into Locus about the nature of this other than what we saw? I guess in the Guardian was what I originally read. Um, yeah, no, that's that's what that's what's out there, and honestly, we're at deadline, so we're nose to the grindstone. We don't really like people think we know everything, and 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 we do know a lot of things, um, but parts of us know these things, and and you yeah, and you can't know what's in. Terry Pratchett's head or Stephen Baxter's head, and, well, and, and also the the purpose of these podcasts, and hopefully we'll get to talk to um, Liza at some point in the future because you know, the Liza Grantromby, the publisher, the editor and publisher of Locus, um, sometime in the in the future we're talking about doing that. But it's not to sort of crack open that world of knowledge that they have because that stays there. It's just really to talk about what we as participants in the field are aware of and are thinking of at any given time. Um. Right, exactly, and this yeah, is this yeah. is a bit of news which is interesting. Sure. And I, yeah, think, no, no, no. I think my reaction my reaction was very much like yours was initially, Jonathan. Was it? It's a little odd. It's not terribly odd. It's not it's not the oddest couple you could put together in the field. You know, it's mm. not uh, it's 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 not Margot Lanigan and Ben Bova, um, <laughs> but it's still. Uh, the, 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 and, and the one kind of common factor, and I don't know if I can prove this at all, which which occurred to me was Lord Dunsany. And the reason I thought of Lord Dunsany was that for many years, uh, early in his career, people assumed that Arthur Clarke had no sense of humor at all. And then he published uh, Tales from the White Heart, mm-hmm. which is a collection of comic club stories set in a pub in London uh, with, with lots of real British science fiction writers showing up as characters. And, you know, John Wyndham is in it and uh, a few other people. And they were clearly uh, a tribute to um, – Lord Dunsany's Jorkin stories, which are these sort of comical yeah. club stories about supernatural adventures. So there was a clear sense of, uh, of, of humor in, in, in Clark's writing. Baxter is the same way. If you look at some of Baxter's things like his YA novel, The H-Bomb Girl, there's a decent sense of humor there. There's a fascination with what you can do with alternate histories, which I gather mm-hmm. is one of the themes of the new thing. Plus the fact that Baxter uh, likes to collaborate and, uh, and had, had been working with Clark. And he's obviously a very professional writer. So, so the idea that he could do something uh, that more or less matches uh, Pratchett doesn't surprise me a, a, a great deal at all. And then, I th- and then the next thing I thought of was exactly what you thought of, which was that Pratchett really began his career with a couple of science fiction novels and, uh, and, uh, and some very incisive and funny commentary about science mm. fiction. The thing so that I'll add um, is that we were planning on – running a, a story about that and wanted to run a photo of the two of them together. And I was tasked with finding that photo. I can't find evidence that they have ever been in front of a camera together, at least not in our archive or on any of the um, places I was looking for, um, yeah. which may or may not mean anything at all. They must um, have crossed paths but, though. But they must have crossed paths. Well, just because I mean, I know it's, they've been at the same conventions at different times. I mean, some I know, of them... I, 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 yeah. It's, it occurs to me they were in Glasgow at the same time, and, uh, well, yeah. sure. and the Melbourne WorldCon as well in '99. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I definitely looked through all the pictures from those conventions, but you know, it it, it struck me as as an aside anyway. Interesting. That they're not the the people who are always running around together. Kind of. <laughs> no. Ah, oh, I mean, uh, given that you are nose to the grindstone at the moment, and I know I do have some inkling as to what that means. Is, is there anything you're hearing around the field that sounds interesting at the moment? 
or are you all I'm, I've got to sort of get a magazine finished and I'm just about to become a first time novelist and oh my god you want to ask me to pay attention to anything else <laughs> yes yeah that's that's pretty much where we're at <laughs> that's pretty much where we're at we're in yeah, the like oh my god my color settings and your color settings are different we have to figure out whether or not you know we have to rebalance the photos that's kind of where we're at yeah <laughs> Did, did either of you see the new SF Signal mind meld that's come out? Oh, the uh, story collections that everybody must have? Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I saw that. I was fascinated by that. I'm not going to go through my usual diatribe about there are no books that everybody must have at all anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but the idea, that what fascinated me about it was that so many of the people were recommending essentially Nesva collections. Uh, you know, it, it, It's kind of a cop-out to me to say, well, you should read his share of glory, which is all of Cornblith's fiction, because that's simply a way of saying you should read all the short fiction by this person or that person. And uh, I think that's not a bad idea to do. They're all wonderful uh, uh, stories. But but actual collections that have had influence as collections are probably more limited and much rarer today than, than they used to be. I mean, the one that comes to mind in the last 15 years that has had more impact than anything else is probably Magic for Beginners. Could be. And uh, in, in terms of there's so much that sort of cascades from that, uh, not in the sense of direct influence, but in the sense of uh, writers realizing that you can do that. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Just, just a liberation that, okay, we, we're not uh, accountable to, um, uh, to the astounding readership or the FNSF readership or the New Yorker readership. We can write whatever we want. And, and that sort of thing has had a huge influence uh, in, in the last few years. I don't know. What were your thoughts? I had yeah, differing thoughts. I mean, the, the first thing which you know, some people are aware is I have a, just a ridiculous puppyish love of short story collections. It doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. I just love them. Mm. And I could rabbit on it for hours and hours and hours. So this first kind of thing like, oh, wow, they're doing a short story collection thing. And I look down the list. I'm going, I know that one. I've got that one. I like that one. And there weren't any that I particularly sat there and went, oh, my God, who would ever want that book? So I thought on one hand, I thought it was really good. But I did, I did have that reaction, first of all, um, that, that, you know, sort of, there isn't anything that you have to have. I mean, time has moved on, as you say. I mean, we had a conversation a while ago. I don't know if you heard it, Amelia, where we were saying, the, basically... The books you don't need to have? Well, yeah, yeah, well mm. there's the books you don't need to have, which I think everybody's kind of interested in as an idea. Uh, but there's also this thing that you know, we don't live in a field anymore that's t where, where the story is told. Uh, particularly in short stories now. It's told novels. So you're not... Charles, gonna... always, Charles always maintained that somewhere, I think, late 70s, until then, everybody read all of the major novels that mm. came out in a yeah. year, and everybody could talk about them because there were 10 of them, or, yeah. you know, 12 or yeah. 7 or something. And so, of course, everybody was up on the field. And, and since that divergence point where more and more novels came out... Yeah. That's really not the case, and and there's still a conversation, there's still a field, there's still a professional sort of league of stuff that's out there that people talk about, but odds are, you know, like, people aren't going to have read it even anywhere near close to everything. I remember wow. having like half an hour conversation with a colleague a couple of years ago about a book that it turns out neither of us had read. <laughs> and and, uh -huh. and I tried to, and it wasn't either of you. No. Okay. Uh, but I've tried to sort of 
And it's really hard, but I've tried to toe that sort of Karen Joy Fowler approach of not pretending to have read something yeah. that somebody else is like, oh, have you read such and such? And it's sometimes easy to sort of like play along, but it's not really fair to the work or to the conversation to 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 play along like that. But it's really hard to be the one who's like, yep, I'm not up on that. Well, it's 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 hard to do that, and it's very yeah. honest to do that, and I make an effort to do that as well. I mean, in our field again, you do run into a certain people who, when you admit not having read their favorite book, or want to revoke your driver's license or something. Like they they look at you like, how how are you allowed out? But you also um, meet the people. Having... You, also, you, you also meet the people who sigh with relief and go, oh, me too, and go, oh no, yeah, I, right, exactly. yeah, I haven't read it either. You mean we can? Oh, have you read this one? No, me either. How about you? No, no, no. I've had several of those but, but, conversations over the years. Yeah, that's a bond um, moment there. <laughs> one of the, um, but uh, uh, Amelia mentioned Karen Joy Fowler, and, and and it occurred to me that one of the things that happened back in those days that Charles was talking about is that not only could you read all the novels that came out in the field, but if there was a new collection of short stories by by uh, by Clifford Simak or Theodore Sturgeon or uh, or Isaac Asimov, it would it would be in a mass market paperback in a year. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm trying to think, and, and now. Yeah, um, but to find a short story collection now, you have to go to Golden Griffin or or, or, or Nightshade or Tachyon, uh, all of which are uh, very respectable publishers that do nice editions, but they're not huge editions, and they're not going to show up on the spin oh. rack at your local drugstore. Yeah. And as, and one of the things, and the reason I thought of Karen Joy Fowler is that um, uh, artificial things. Uh, there was one of the very earliest Crawford Awards we were giving out, and she was in contention for that and would never given one to a short story collection. That was a short story collection that, is, as I recall, did very well in mass market paper, mm -hmm. probably, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, in the early 80s maybe. Yeah. Um, and I like don't it. know uh, – okay, how many mass market paperback short story collections, not by Stephen King, uh, can, can you even name in the last five years? Oh, very few. Very few at all. Yeah, uh, I think – Publishing's changed since the '80s, certainly, though. Well, I think I, I think publishing has changed absolutely, but I also think the field has changed to the point now when we look at science fiction um, and science fiction publishing, uh, we find that things like short story collections are now the remit of um, small presses, and in fact, to some degree, mm -hmm. short story for all of the short story is artistically alive and well. You know, you know, these days, it's alive and well as a literary subset of the rest of the field to some degree rather i mean it still has an element of being that kind of essential boiling kind of laboratory of ideas and that certainly happens and a source of new writers and a place where you can try things but it's also kind of increasingly sliding into being a more rarefied pursuit the you know the, the broader part of the field focuses on novels and follows you know novels actively and has for the past 25 years or 30 years and it, it seems to mm -hmm. be ever, ever more so uh, sort of, and so you know that that's why you can get. I mean, I was looking at the mind meld, and Mike Resnick specifically recommends a three hundred dollar, five hundred copy limited edition of a book. Mm. And you're thinking, which th this this should be on every fan's library. Really? Well, this is this is what this raises the question of what you mean by a fan, and uh, I mean just in marketing. Uh, sense i mean you you could almost you could almost think of the difference between people who seek out short story collections which you have to do now and people who read novels that are you know, constantly thrown at them uh as as maybe similar to the difference between people who um you know download from itunes and people who actually go to concerts 
there, there are far fewer of the latter, and the latter uh, are convinced that this is how you hear new material. This is sure. how, and, and and some of my favorite groups, you know, will play to crowds of 500 or a thousand. Not, yeah. uh, it's, it's not like the Eagles are going to be here in Chicago next week and they're going to fill a football stadium. Yeah. Uh, but to some extent, the people who read short story collections now are people who have to make an effort to do that. And that sure. is a subset of fandom, which is I've, I've heard the uh, uh, the comparison for decades has been made between uh, the science fiction market in literature and the jazz market uh, yeah. in in recordings. Uh, I think yeah. Kingsley Amos made that years ago. Or you could use the classical music market. Uh, the, the material is there and it's available, but it's no longer going to be uh, thrust in your face. Yeah. And, and and that's divided fandom. I think into two parts, or it's divided. I shouldn't say fandom. It's divided readership into two parts. Those people who read what they're told to read and those people who look for what they're going to read. Yeah. And if you think about the actual print runs of the digests and the mm. print runs of collections, like that's pretty small. You know, it is. like it's it's in the I mean the digests are, are in the sort of fifteen thousand ish range maybe. Um you know, give or take a couple thousand. Sure. Um and they used to be in the 200,000 range 50 years ago. Um, yeah. Things have changed since then. Uh, short story collections often come out from, you know, these small presses, independent publishers, whatever, and do it for, you know, 5,000 copies maybe. Oh, 500 sometimes. 500, even that. But in, Quite often, in, in increasingly, in, in, increasingly, you're finding, uh, uh, you know, major short fiction showing up in the end, in, in the original anthologies. And, and, and again, Jonathan, you get some credit here. The Eclipse anthology, which showed, you know, had Karen Fowler's The Pelican Bar, one of the great stories of last year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that's happening at the same time that, uh, you know, the more successful small press print Small press print rums are are, are are getting sometimes up to the point where they're, as as Amelia said, they're getting close to the print runs of the of the digest magazines. Oh yeah, and the pay scales are certainly comparable, uh, and in some cases uh, maybe even better for the books. They can be. I do have a question, and this is what I've been wrestling with, and I'm, I want to sort of throw it out to you both because I have been genuinely onshore, right? I have friends who've responded to this mind meld, right? And first of all, they, they don't like the fact that it says you should have something because they feel that it moves the whole conversation into the sort of the, a feeling as though, though there's an obligation on you to do something. You must do this rather than sort of, I think this is a great book. You really should. And the other thing is, of course, the whole gender balance issue in terms of the people who are recommending uh, right. books and also the books that are recommended. And, you know, there are you know, odd gender balances through the whole thing. And here's the question that I've been struggling with. How do you talk about the history of our field now if you're always going to challenge the accuracy of that history in terms of what actually happened because of gender issues? I mean, if you turn around and say, I mean, okay, I'll give you an example. And it's it's a fairly wrong-headed example, but you know, Mike Resnick recommends five books or ten books and nine of them are by, by men. And his response mm-hmm. when challenged to this is, well, he was talking about the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and that's just how it was. You know, at that time, the field just was dominated by men, rightly, wrongly, fairly, unfairly. He's just, you know. And people have mm-hmm. come back and said, well, you know, no, that's just the way the story's being told. And so I guess what I'd say to you, both of you, for very, you know, different and equal, equally interesting reasons is, how do you talk about the history of our field in the 21st century when the story isn't necessarily easy to articulate? 
very carefully is how you talk about it. And you talk <laughs> That's about a good it answer. from a number of different perspectives because the, you know, something like Locus is, is actually trying to be, um, like the point of Locus is to show that science fiction is important. And so we try to report it from a journalistic perspective. And so that's one record. It's not the only record. Oh. Um, it, it tries to be right as much as, as it can. Um, but there's no standard of comparison beyond it, except everything else that's out there. That's also reporting, you know, on science fiction. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that in some ways the question of, you know, what's correct or, or what's historically accurate has to be a multi-perspective endeavor. And those perspectives are going to create some parallax. They're going to challenge one another. Mm. And that doesn't mean that any of them are particularly wrong or right. How's it's, that? This is related, yeah, this is related to a question which I've been fascinated by, which is, which is similar, which is essentially how does science fiction discover its own past? I mean, what Mike apparently what Mike Resnick was saying was this is kind of the accepted wisdom, and uh, and and stories become classic stories by virtue of being reprinted frequently, essentially. Right. And by and large, there is a frankly sexist history of editing in science fiction. Sure. There are a lot of stories that uh, uh, w w one of the major short story writers. Two of, well, uh, a couple of them. Uh, I could actually I could start naming a lot of them. But uh, we talked about Zena Henderson, whose people stories were were terrific. They were a new kind yeah. of science fiction in terms of in terms of the domesticization of science fiction in the sense of stories about a teacher. They were actually better stories than most of Judith Merrill's short fiction. Yeah. But they didn't get anthologized a lot. They got it in years best, but they didn't get up in the they didn't get in the classic anthologies that ended up. Uh, I think there was one in the Science Fiction Hall of Fame. Mm. So the Mildred Klingerman, uh, the, there were a number of people, Margaret St. Clair, a number of people who uh, wrote what I suspect, not having reread them recently, are very solid stories that didn't become part of the common history of the field by virtue of not having been anthologized by, by editors who might very well have been male editors that just didn't pay attention to them. Uh, Lee Brackett may be an exception. She yeah. certainly uh, uh, had a high-profile but she had a high profile mostly for her planet stories kinds of stories and not yeah. for her, uh, her, her more serious uh, uh, novels like The, the Long Tomorrow. And her Tomorrow. screenwriting. And yeah. her screenwriting as well, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's um, I mean, the, 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 It's a fascinating question because um, there's, uh, uh, you know, the, the other way of looking at it uh, in, in terms of uh, with with women, you can you can sort of identify this. If you start looking, let's say let's say you start looking at gay themes or gay writers. Sure. If you go back before 20 years ago, you have no way of knowing. Uh, and, and, and unless you really parse the stories very carefully to find out something about this, uh, there was you know, th th there was very little of a conscious uh, uh, gay tradition in science fiction writing. Uh, mm. and, and now there is, uh, and, and, and now we can kind of but, – but now that we've got that tradition in place, how do you go back historically and find the sources of it? Um, I have no idea. I mean I'm, I'm – well, Yeah. Uh, well, w w one of the things that made me think about this was uh, was was this whole cascade of anthologies from the 40s to the present, and um, and, and and reading histories of science fiction that 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 claim that science fiction includes Jonathan Swift and Plato and uh, mm -hmm. Lucian of Samosata and that sort of thing. Uh, the fact is that most science fiction writers didn't know about that when they were writing these stories in the 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, constructing history from a kind of ideological or literary history. Uh, point of view is is very useful and ought to be done. 
that's not the same kind of history as asking yourself, what had Doc Smith read before? He, what, what was Heinlein reading? We know that Heinlein was reading things like The Steam Man of the Prairies, and he was reading uh, dime novels when he was a kid. Yeah. Um, but it's very difficult to, to, to trace. And, and, and we know, we, we can tell that Dory, Cory Doctorow has been reading Asimov, for example. Mm -hmm. so, so there are some cases where you can actually trace a direct line of influence from contemporary writers back to the generation before and the generation before and the generation before. And there are other ki kinds of history where you find something that was published 50, 60, 150 years ago and reclaim it for the history of science fiction, even though there's no continuity between that at all mm -hmm. and what's being written today. I'm sounding like a professor now. I stop me. Well, that's you pretty much are, <laughs> and that's okay. And and you know, frankly, I think our listeners eat it up. I mean, I'm interested because I find myself in this position where I'm I'm engaging in a lot of dialogues that I find very interesting and rewarding. Um, but I'm how would I put it? You're you're sort of expecting a negative response because you're trying to work out how do you move from a very traditional dialogue about the field. I mean, the dialogue that I grew up with was the, a very traditional accepted wisdom kind of um, point of view. And certainly if you were to, you know, if you would have interrupted a conversation between Charles and I 10 years ago, that was the conversation we were having. You know, mm -hmm. it was the, along came Hugo Gernsback, they did magazines, there was Heinlein, there was Clark, there was Asimov, there was Bradbury, and then on came the new wave and da-da-da-da. And that's all true for a part of the story. But you know now there's this pressure. Well, there's this, I think it's a dual pressure, and it's a, part of it's a tw actually a 21st century thing. I think we're seeing, you know, the, the you know the, the center which to some degree Locus argued for and worked to help hold, didn't hold. You know the field has shattered. Um, mm -hmm. You know beyond all hope of it ever being put back together, even should that be considered to be a good thing. You know, and so so now there's this this need to find a way. To, to develop a language for it, to to allow that, you know, when you talk about that story, you're talking about not necessarily, although it's phrased this way, a racist, sexist history, but you're certainly talking about a gender-specific, race-specific history, you know, and so finding a way to, to move from that is is, is difficult. Well, well, there's think, a... yeah, you're talking, about, you're talking about stories that are written by and for, at least in terms of the pulps, like by and for young, relatively educated white men. Yeah. Which is what oh, they no, were at the that, time. That, oh, yeah, sure. And, and they've aged, and other people mm. have come into the field, and, and, you know, and the rest of us are sort of figuring mm. out how the, you know, the, the non-white, non-male, non-educated, yeah. whatever, are, are figuring out sure. other ways of, of, of interpreting this. Yeah. Well, and actually, Amelia, you're doing that a little bit too. If I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm going, I'm, this is not a spoiler, I hope. But is it fair to say that there's a science fiction element in The Loving Dead? Absolutely. Okay, so I can. Okay, you're not mad at me. Um, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> because one of the things, and I actually had this conversation with Charles once, and we actually had a piece of paper and we're drawing diagrams, which shows you how geeky we were getting. Uh, and they were like Feynman diagrams that everybody knows there are uh, the, the alternate history subgenre is always based on the John Barr point. There's a point at which you can have infinite futures if something changes. And we have infinite futures. Uh, I, I don't know if I've ever seen a story that reverses that. That if you can have an infinite number of possible futures li le leading to the present moment, can you have an in can't you also have an infinite number of possible pasts that lead to the present moment? In other words, couldn't you actually write an alternate history? A few people have done this a little bit. Um, 
which in which everything corrects itself and converges on our moment now. Now, the reason I mention that is I'm not necessarily suggesting people should write that science fiction story, but you can write the history of science fiction the same way. And the reason I mention that in connection with The Loving Dead is that what Amelia is doing is going back. Some there, There's some very traditional science fiction history in the science fiction parts of that book, but there are also George Romero zombie, zombie movies. Sure. There's also mainstream New Yorkers kind of stuff. In other words, the history of science fiction as written from this moment isn't only that history that involved Gerns back to the new wave, etc., but it's histories that may involve Shirley Jackson, it may, in, may involve John Cheever, it may involve any number of things um, that that are now fair game for science fiction. So it's uh, and it's possible even within our little uh, arena of science fiction to ask if if we've made the right choices. It's not just a matter of, um, of, of, of women writers being excluded. Sometimes it's a question of, are we looking at the right books altogether in terms of what people are writing today? A couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. we were haranguing about uh, the lack of Joanna Russ's collected stories yes. being in print. Absolutely. And, okay, the, the accepted history of science fiction, I'm going out on a limb here now, which I have no idea if it's going to fall off <laughs> under me. Uh, the canonical history of science fiction now cannot exclude Le Guin. I mean, the left hand of darkness and the dispossessed and all the stories are clearly, you know, what defines science fiction uh, yeah. during the 70s. Is is Le Guin really a more important writer in terms of what people are doing today than Joanna Russ was? So so the, the problem there is, is, and what Jonathan was sort of edging on this earlier, like the words important or should... Mm a very moral context and the like my own sort of knee-jerk reaction to anything that feels like preaching is like no I'm not I'm not gonna do that screw that like and and so that that's a difficult thing to run up against the like the you should read it I'm trying to avoid saying you should read it I'm trying to ask what read what writers today and this is where you come right into the middle of it Amelia because you do know the history of science fiction and you know the history of science fiction probably better than you know the history of zombie fiction. Um, but when you're writing or when a writer today is writing, what are they thinking about? Um, and I don't know. There's a lot of stuff. The reason I mentioned Russ, for example, there's a lot of stuff in Russ stories that seems to be showing up again today. Uh, there's Just like there's a lot of stuff from Fritz Leiber stories that mm. seems to be showing up again today. Um Le Guin was enormously important, but I don't know anybody who's trying to do anything like what she did. Um, mm, no, that's an interesting thing, it. yeah. Yes, I, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I will say that, just completely irrelevantly as an aside, I did consider putting together a list of the ten least influential short story collections of all time. <laughs> that would be <laughs> which, fun. Which sounds like I'm being glib, but you know what? Let's start with Ted Chang's Stories of Our Life and move from there. Mm. Because there is a batch of them you could do quite readily, which are spectacularly brilliant. I mean, a whole bunch of people in this 10 collections you have to have thing. Cite mm. 900 Grandmothers by R.A. Lafferty. Now, I love R.A. Lafferty. I think he's lots and lots of fun. I would happily recommend to people that if they want to read a good book, they should consider. You know, if they enjoy comics, they might enjoy mm. 900 Grandmothers. I don't think it influenced a living soul. Might be wrong. But by and large had very little impact on the field in that kind of a way. Well, uh, and, and, and you, could, you could possibly even say the same thing about Cordwainer Smith, although people have tried to recreate that. Uh, a, a writer like Lafferty is, is someone that you either do a pastiche of, which Neil yep. Gaiman has done. Sure, yep. People have done this. Yep. Or you, you just don't 
do it at all because he's 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 completely sui generis. He's not like anybody else. Uh, in other words, there is that kind of influence which isn't really an influence because people think this is great. I love those stories, but I'm not going to write anything like them because I don't know how he did that. And I think there's, no. I think maybe part of the answer to your question when it comes to Le Guin is, I'm going to go out and limb myself, and I'm going to say that someone like Kelly Link would say I am heavily influenced by Ursula Le Guin, right? Mm. And Kate Wilhelm, for example. And yet, I don't know that you would necessarily pick up many traces of that in her fiction. So it may well be that uh, someone like Le Guin has been conceptually influential in, in ways that we don't mm -hmm. readily detect, whereas someone like Russ has been, uh, for want of a better way of phrasing it, topically influential. You know, the stuff which she writes about and how she writes about it has influenced people in other ways, and that's more likely to show up in what they write. You know, well, I think that may be true, and, and that's that's the liberation factor. And I remember having a conversation with Joe Lansdale, as a matter of fact. He showed up at one of our uh, Philip Jose Farmer gatherings in Peoria a few years ago. And, I've, I, I, and he said this, but I've talked to Chris Roberson and a number of younger writers who had the same reaction. And Neil Gaiman, for that matter, said the same thing, that back in the 50s, Farmer was drawing from – Stuff he convinced writers that you can you can take mythology and horror fiction and science fiction and fantasy and mainstream stuff and pornography and you can put all that into one book. You're no long your sources are no longer limited to whatever genre you grew up with. And and Lansdale said he taught me how to do that. Yeah. Uh, and that's a very great compliment, I think. But it's not as though Lansdale writes at all like Phil Farmer. Yeah. He simply learned from Phil that you are liberated. You can now do whatever you want to, which brings me back to, 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 to the loving dead again because it seems to me that what I'm, – I'm speaking out of turn again. No. What Amelia was doing was that, was taking any damn thing she wanted and putting it in that book. Yeah, well, that's, that's the license of the first novel, the like I am going to put all sorts of crap into this that, you know, it, it doesn't really matter because – Maybe nobody will ever read it. And so I have free license to pull from everything and anything. And, you know, my publisher's sort of, like, line is, you know, if Christopher Moore and Chuck Palahniuk had a love child, like, this is what it would be. And I wasn't consciously thinking of, of yeah. working in either of their territories. Oh. I didn't actually realize I was writing a horror novel until people are starting to say, yeah, I can't really read that, or I, gave, I got nightmares, or... Yeah. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's. So to some extent, you write the story that 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 you write. Yeah, the story uh, gets to take over. And I would say as well. well that, I mean, that's a, you, I, have, you, you do have the advantage. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say that I that I read some stuff that uh, Ke both Kelly Link and a couple other people were uh, discussing this past week online uh, about uh, uh, being taught by Kate Wilhelm. And her saying that basically what what a writer should do is basically take the things that fascinate them, write them down as a list, and then find ways to turn them into stories, basically. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, not necessarily consciously, that's exactly what you seem to have done. And it's it, it's actually quite an established and reasonable way to approach the act of creating fiction, you know. Yeah, it's, I've, it's I've heard much, that advice. It's very much... Yeah, no, I've heard that and, advice. And, and, Amelia... <laughs> Well, and, and, and you're right that the advantage of, of being a first novelist is that really no one has any expectations, which must be liberating in a way. Daryl Gregory's first novel, Pandemonium, was very much like that. I mean, he's got Philip K. Dick in it. He's got all sorts of he's, – he's having a lot of fun uh, seeing how far he can push uh, things. And I, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I like about the first novels I've been seeing in the last few years is that there isn't any sense uh, among many of these writers that we have to do any one thing. Um, and – 
uh, I, I think it must be a great feeling for a writer to be starting off these days without, I mean, assuming you're not writing a Heinlein juvenile, realizing that you can just uh, draw on on a hundred different traditions. The version that I've heard is is you write about what bothers you, um, and and that requires a certain level of emotional honesty, um, which which is really interesting to to push at and push through. But the tools to, to get at that honesty. Hmm? <laughs> As I said, were you always bothered by Trader Joe's? <laughs> I love Trader Joe's. <laughs> I love Trader Joe's. I think Trader Joe's is great. I um, was talking about this with somebody else, but um, with John Armstrong, about the, like, you know, you go to Trader Joe's in California, you know, on the weekend or something, and people are just, there's just so, such crowds. It's really difficult to get a parking spot or a shopping cart or get from place to place because, you know, it's so packed and everybody's sort of moving slowly and not paying attention to one another. And, and that part is not my favorite part, um, about Trader Joe's, but it, it, it connected on a level with zombies to me because people are sort of shuffling around, not really paying attention in search of sustenance, which they deeply need mm. and want, but not in a way that they can express. And so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think that it was a totally fair thing to to bring retail into it. Mm. And, and Trader Joe's and, is the right one to do because, you know, your characters, your your non-zombie characters, are the, well, they not only work there, but they would trade there. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to just make a connection now between between the novel um, and uh, as, a, as a disclaimer, I did not, I didn't, I have not reviewed the the Loving Dead. I'm not going to review it because Jonathan is a very responsible reviews editor, and, and Amelia's a friend, so I don't review that book. But what you just said sounded a lot like what happens in Kelly Link's The Hortlack, which is a convenience store in the middle of the night, night uh, and people are coming in, zombies are coming in from the Ausable Chasm, and they're they're trying to buy things with twigs and with leaves, leaves that they found in the. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And they really, really badly need stuff, and they can't quite figure out what it is they need, and they don't have the money to pay for it. And I thought, okay, that's probably what a, that's probably what a Seven Eleven is like at three o'clock in the morning, anyway. You know, <laughs> and it's just... you yes. Hello. Need to... Still there? Am I gone again? No, no. I thought no, maybe. Can you hear me? For a second, there, I thought it was me. Okay. No, I can hear everybody now. Sorry, we just got we all had a little drop out there for a second. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've, I've got my, my question to Amelia was: Is Trader Joe's twenty-four hours in California? Oh no, no, it's uh, nine to nine, I think. I um, I had a friend. I'll just a quick aside. A friend who's worked at Seven Eleven off and on occasionally for years, and and will occasionally get calls from little old ladies who ask, "Are you still open from seven to 11? And she says, <laughs> "Yes," because they are. <laughs> and you say, well, do you work the closing shift? And she'll say yes, because she works Christmas Eve. <laughs> but Trader Joe's are not, alas, nothing's 24 hours out here. And and I'm from, like I said, near Detroit. And there's a lot of 24-hour joints out there. You know, restaurants, uh, Coney Islands, which is sort of a Greek-influence hot dog mm. sort of diner Um thing where you can go and smoke and you know have a a mm. whatever diner sort of meal um and i was i moved to california and 
was wondering where all of the 24-hour joints had gone because there's a little bit out here, but there's not much. And realized that I was actually asking the question in the wrong direction mm -hmm. after a while and, and thought, well, why does Detroit have so many 24-hour joints? It's because of the shift work. Yeah. Right? You get off work mm -hmm. at 7 right. and you want to go have a beer and some dinner. I remember. Or midnight. Uh, so... Yeah. I, I, come, I come from a little town at the end of the world, and I remember you know, during the year that I lived in Oakland, and, and one of the reasons I have to say that I'm loving the novel is because it really does take me back, um, is that you know, I remember one time uh, Marianne and I, my wife, were, were going out looking for dinner, and it was sort of like 9.45, 10 o'clock on a Friday evening, I think it was, mm. and there was nowhere open in Oakland for dinner. Yeah, a lot of places close around 10. Mm. And you're kind of going, how can this be? It's like this is an enormous city. It's, you know, North America in the twenty, in the in, in, well, in the late twentieth century at that time. How can it possibly be? And it's quite odd. But yeah. I, but I think I'll always be grateful to the book for, for sort of to take take me back. And I'd also say, and you may not have seen it, Gary, because I'm reading mm -hmm. the book. Um, whilst I've ordered my copy, um, while I'm reading it on the website at the moment, uh, there's actually a little video that you've put in there from YouTube or somewhere, uh, the, the Oakland tourist video. <laughs> oh, really? I haven't seen that. It's, it's lots of fun. I've been some of those places, sadly. <laughs> <laughs> Driven down some of those streets, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a, it's a tongue-in-cheek sort of like, come visit Oakland. You know, you can come to the theater, which is a speakeasy. You can get a pizza. Oh, right, it's closed. Yeah, you oh. can walk around and say, carrot. Like, what's that smell? Oh, I think it's a, a dead thing. I think that's a hooker floating over there. Like, oh. yeah, definitely. It's a beautiful place. It is o sunny Oakland, and, it, 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 and you do evoke it very well in the novel, and, it, and that's another thing which I think is, uh, which I'm enjoying seeing in novels now, is that there's a sense of place, and I, I don't know why I'm thinking of Daryl Gregory. His second novel was set in rural Tennessee, I think, and it really is believable. And I was mm. reading, um, oh, I, I guess I was reading the Stan Robinson stories. There's there's a kind of grounding that you used to find in what you'd call regionalist literature and I'm sure there is a I'm sure there's an Oakland tradition of of, of, of realistic fiction probably goes back to Bret Hart and people like that um, which I don't know that well but um, but that's something that I always missed in in science fiction and fantasy and horror when I uh, mm. when I was looking for it and when you'd see it when you when you get a place that was utterly real like some of the settings of Sturgeon stories were just yeah. utterly believable you always really uh, learn to appreciate that and uh, and, and 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 you're right. I mean, so anybody who's been to Oakland and and um, or is, is going to recognize the landscape in in, in that novel uh, in in a very realistic way. Which is again uh, what I was saying about the the sources. Of, there's a lot of stuff in the novel which is very mainstream. We're back to plugging the Loving Dead again, which I said I wasn't going to do, but I like it a lot. Um, and the sense of even even the idea of having a Zeppelin. The only non-steampunk Zeppelin to appear in fiction in the last 10 years. I mean, that's an achievement right there. It's actually a Zeppelin out there, isn't there? <laughs> well, but it's a real Zeppelin. And, and so once I figured out, you know, this was in existence, I thought, well, I have to put it in. In that sort of first novel, I'm going to put all of the things in my bucket that I really like and sort of shake them around and look at them. But I definitely did do that, like... I have my novel with Zeppelin zombie stuff, and people are like, "Oh, so it's steampunk?" Like, well, no, <laughs> exactly, but it's not. No, there are. No. I mean, it, 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 it's a gentle reminder that there are real things in the world that aren't steampunk, 
Um, and you know that the, there are actually goggles that people use to do things with, um, and 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 don't just wear them to parties and things. And the the idea that there's a zeppelin there, and no, it's not a World War One zeppelin, and 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 no, there's no magic involved with it. It actually is there, and 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 can presumably go on rides on it. Is is that kind of grounding, which I think is one of the things that makes. Um, Zeppelin uh, is a grounding kind of technique. <laughs> grounding. Zeppelin is a grounding technique. We've got an article. Let's do this foundation. Oh no, you were talking about influences. We were talking about influences before, to some extent, and 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 about um, uh, about Oakland. And I was thinking, actually, in the back of my mind, as I was writing this about Isabel by Guy Gavril Kay, um, and how it's kind of a love letter to Provence. And I was thinking, well, if he can do that for a beautiful, beautiful part of the world, yeah. I can do that for Oakland. <laughs> uh, Absolutely. I've got uh, Peter Straub's new novel, The Dark Matter, has part of it. The opening, opening chapter takes place on my block, which I think is really cool. And I'm trying to show – well, I mean it's just because because you realize this is a real place. Now, I'm guessing Peter is a skilled enough writer that if you've never seen my block, which – well, Amelia, you have, but Jonathan, you haven't, mm. that somebody's going to recognize this is a real place. This yeah. is a real geography. Yeah. I can find that. I can figure that out. And that, that kind of – that's a tradition from realism, which has now been very comfortably and unassumedly imported by um, – by by a, a great many science fiction and fantasy writers, and I, I think that's that's a, that's a good thing. That's what I meant about going back to the history of. If you write yeah. the history of science fiction from the point of view of today, who's writing today? You can't go back to any one tradition. You're going no, back no, you to you know, multiple traditions. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, since you mentioned Guy, I was toying with the idea of trying to get him onto this podcast to talk about something that he wrote, but it actually mm. it actually ties in here quite nicely, and that is he was talking about the impact of blogging, podcasting, all this kind of stuff on creating a relationship with readers and how it breaks down that privacy wall and creates the illusion of a relationship with these people who you never really meet. Now that you're moving into this that th this world as a public person, if you like, in a way that you weren't before, how are you sort of coming to terms with that? How, what are your thoughts about sort of building relationships with readers and people who you don't really know and how that may create expectations that they will have of you? Yeah, it's something that I've thought a lot about and, and had conversations about. And, you know, we talk about the things that bother us. Um, and so I'm relatively conservative in as of yet in the amount of personal information that I am really comfortable with putting out there because um, yeah. I'm kind of getting my feet wet um, but I definitely have like well now I've got a website and now I've got a blog and now I've got publicity pictures online and now I have a public persona that that I get to choose right that was the part of it mm -hmm. that, that was kind of a new an exciting development that I get to choose what aspects are public and I get to make up, you know, the aspects that, that I want to, to share. Yeah. But it's and a you're, you're moving into, yeah, you're moving into this area where, uh, I mean, even though you publish stories and things, am I still there? Okay. Yeah. Even though you'd published stories and things before, now you've got readers who are, who are not your friends. I mean, people you've never met are going to be talking to you about this book. And that, uh, the first time out, uh, might be a little bit creepy. I don't blame you for wanting to control the amount of information that people have about you. 
Yeah. Right. Well, and I, and I don't do it in in the sense of, you know, like I don't I have had so the the thing that I've sort of come out with in all of my um, conversations and 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 thoughts about this whole issue is not that I'm particularly concerned about protecting myself from the way that I present myself. Mm-hmm. I am concerned about what the line is between what I own and what is actually somebody else's. Mm-hmm. So if I have a conversation mm-hmm. with Annie Willis on the phone and she tells me an anecdote, at what point do I get to share that? Or if I have an mm-hmm. email exchange with somebody, you know, who do I share that with? And, mm-hmm. and the point that I think Guy has made where it sort of breaks down is that if I have what I feel like is a relatively protected conversation where I can admit, you know, something that I feel like is kind of proprietary information, something mm-hmm. that someone else shared with me because we were having a conversation and not because they were transmitting it to the world at large. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I get to judge when, when a circumstance is, is public? And that's, mm. that's what I mean by being conservative, that, I know a lot of people and I talk to a lot of people about a lot of different things. And so I have to keep in mind their privacy more than mine. Mm. That's also an element that, uh, that something that I think Charles taught us all, which was essentially uh, in, in terms of the way locusts always covered journalism was to be very, very careful about what you can and can't uh, publish. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a good, it's a good lesson to internalize because one of the things that happens with some writers uh, is that the readers begin to feel a sense of ownership that you, yeah. know, you have to you have to share your life with me. I was in an elevator once with a young kid, um, and Harlan Ellison, uh, and it was and the kid was a phenomenal Harlan fan, which, as you can imagine, impresses Harlan not at all. Uh, and but the kid clearly was saying, "You have to. We have to have drinks. We have to do this. We have to. You got to come to my house." Uh, and and eventually, the kid was basically saying, "I own you. You know, mm. I bought your book, so I own you, and you need to do this for me because you owe it to me because I'm your reader and I'm the guy who makes uh, makes you a wealthy writer." Mm. Um, and of which I think, as I recall, and I may be misremembering it, I think Harlan grabbed his throat at that point. Um, <laughs> but, but but there is a sense at which uh, you. I mean, and you may have to protect yourself from 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 uh, readers who feel that owning the book means owning the author. Yep. Yeah, let, we'll 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 see. I'm not going to borrow trouble. That's <laughs> kind of sounds like I a don't problem. think you're in. I, I think you can <laughs> handle yourself pretty well. <laughs> it sounds like a problem that would be interesting to have. Yeah, it does, <laughs> doesn't it? Ah, well, we must be coming towards the end of all this. We've been talking for like an hour or two, or an hour and a half, or something. I was. Just say one thing we've done a few times lately, and we might just whip around is before we sort of sign off. Is you guys reading anything that's worth recommending to the world at large right now this week? I am doing um, research for an upcoming novel, so I'm not really reading genre stuff. <clears throat> so that suggests you're going to be writing outside the genre in the future. Well, no, no, it's 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 this particular project is um, is going to be a YA fantasy. Um, but it requires a lot of research um or rather the research is kind of part of the fun um, yeah yeah so i'm reading mainstream stuff mainstream literature mainstream fiction and nonfiction about deafness and deaf culture okay okay 
something that I remember Carolyn Long used to be fascinated in. For some reason. Deaf culture? Hmm. Mm, yeah, yeah. I'd but watch- I just read Blackout, and that was great. <laughs> How about you, Gary? I just I already mentioned the uh, best of Kim Stanley Robinson. I'll mention it again, if only because I'm and I just finished writing a draft of a review of it, so I may be coming off of uh, an initial impression. I'm wondering if his new story in that collection may be the best story he's written. I love it. Um, and it's not a fantasy or science fiction story. It's called The Tempest of the Berlin Philharmonic 1942. And it does something I've never seen a work of fiction quite do before. Uh, it In his story notes, well, you know this because you did the book. In his story oh, notes yeah. at the end, he mentions a YouTube video yeah. of this actual performance of of, 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 of uh, Fritz Wangler conducting the Berlin Philharmonic in 1942. So I went and looked at it after having read the story. And suddenly what seems like an ordinary YouTube video is terrifying. It's electrifying. It's just – it's like the story informs the video and the other way around. And it's uh, it, if, if he if he could somehow embed that video in the book itself, it would be a stunning cr- sort of work of synthetic art. And I started. I'm looking at Stephen Baxter's new novel, Stone Spring, and I'm looking at uh, a couple of other things. I have a copy of Gibson's Zero History, which I'm looking forward to MG, very much. MG, but yep. when you well, when you're on a monthly schedule, you can't. I can't read Zero History until after I turn in my column for this <laughs> month. So that's very true. And for me, believe it or not, I'm still sort of reading Dervish House, which I'm still enjoying, but reading slowly because I've had to move on to editing and uh, one of the anthologies I have to deliver. And also, of course, reading The Loving Dead, which I'm about yeah, about a third of the way through and enjoying very much so far. So. I hope it whacks you upside the head. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly what I was looking for in a book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Amelia, for coming and joining us. We, it's been a lot of fun. I hope, I hope one way or another we get to yes. chat this way again, whether it's for a podcast or not, because it is sort of fun. Yes. No, I would like to do this another time when we're not just talking about my damn novel. Well, it's not a damn novel, but yes, <laughs> it, 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 it would be nice. It, it does take me back to, to the back deck, which is, oh, you know, good. which is the, the true origin of this podcast is the back deck. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. We we we, we can call it that. I actually, I'm having a glass of wine. Uh, well, to be honest, a bottle of wine. Okay, uh, while we're doing this, but it's not. But the only the only thing is not as good as the wine Charles would have given us. No, no. As as we as we move up towards the coming Locus Awards, and of course, eventually the um, the anniversary isn't that far away either. So, anyway, thank you, Amelia. Anyway, yeah. Thank you, Gary. Uh, Gary, I'll talk to you next week. Amelia, I will probably... All right, thank you, with Jonathan. A bit of, with a bit of luck, I'll see you in October and maybe talk. To you, we'll talk to you before then. Absolutely. Take okay. care, gents. Take care. Bye. Okay. Good night. Bye.